Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Anthropology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel, and today I am in conversation with Dr. Rashmi Sadana, author of the new book, Moving City, Scenes from the Delhi Metro and the Social Life of Infrastructure, published by University of California Press in 2022. Dr. Sadana is Associate Professor of Anthropology at George Mason University, and Moving City is her second book. Congratulations, Rashmi, on this fantastic book. I loved it so very much. Thank you for taking time out to chat with me about Moving City. And again, it's uh, it's a book that I've been recommending to everyone that I've come across in the recent past, and I'm so excited to have a chance to chat with you about it. Thank you so much. Neha for having me on this podcast and I'm just really happy to be in conversation with you. Yeah, so let's um, get this conversation started by getting to know you a bit better. So how did you become an anthropologist? Okay, so I would say that I became an anthropologist basically during graduate school. Um, I had actually been an English major in college at Berkeley And by my last two years, I was mostly taking courses in African-American literature, immigrant literature, post-colonial literature in English and in translation. So I had already developed an interest in places and people and their movements over time. And after Berkeley, I went to the School of Oriental and African Studies in London, SOAS, to do um, a master's in South Asia studies, because by that time I knew I wanted to do something about post-colonialism in India. And being at SOAS was a really significant experience since it was, the place was a real crossroads for students from all over the world, from the post-colonial world. Um, So there were people from all over Africa, all over Asia. And it's the, the place where, Um, partly because of the people I 
got to know and the courses I was taking, I realized I wanted to go beyond textual analysis and that I wanted to do field research. And for me at that time, this meant understanding how the street life and the home life of English and Hindi, especially in North India, related to the politics of literary production, because I'd been interested in you know, post-colonial literature. But from all of the time I had already spent in India, I knew that what you got in the text was only a fraction of the multilingual reality of, of everyday life. And so that was really when I decided to do a PhD in anthropology. Um, and that became my dissertation project and eventually my first book, English Heart, Hindi Heartland, which is an ethnography of the literary field in Delhi, publishers, writers, translators, and an analysis of the politics of authenticity more generally um, as English moved from being a post-colonial language to a global language in the Indian context. So I was able to marry my interest in English literature with um, anthropology and ethnographic fieldwork in that first project. Yeah, that's uh, really, really interesting. And it it takes me back to the time when um, you were teaching uh, students like me uh, post-colonial literatures. And it was such an interesting course that uh, I had the pleasure to learn from you at um, IIT Madras way back in 2009, I think. Um, yeah, it <laughs> It's so funny how time flies. And here we are talking about your your new book, Moving City. Um, so I'm very curious to know more about the second book, because I, th- I think it's quite different from your from your previous research. So when did you start uh, working on research for Moving City and how did you go about doing this research? OK, well, um, I first took the Delhi Metro in 2006, and at that time, I was just, you know, on a trip to to Delhi for a few months. At that time, I was uh, doing a postdoc at Columbia, and I was actually writing my first book, turning my dissertation into into a book. Um, so I just took the metro just like that, just like anybody, just having a joyride. But I have to say, when I was sitting on that train the first time, I knew it would be my next project. It was a real <clears throat> aha moment. And the reality of actually doing the research (laughs) came next, um, but not until a couple of years later. And I knew that I wanted to think about the system as a whole. And yet the ethnographer in me knew that I wanted to tell small scale stories. So the challenge was really how to put these two things together. Um, And so the research really started out by me making visits to the Delhi Metro Rail Corporation or DMRC, as it's known. Um, They were in charge of constructing the metro, of managing its daily operations. And the DMRC had a big identifiable building in the middle of Delhi at Connaught Place. So I thought, okay, this is a good place to start. But my access didn't go much further than the PR department. Um, I did end up interviewing architects and urban planners, but I met them through other ways and through other contacts over the years. And at a certain point, I started spending more and more of my time just riding the trains, going to all the stations, hanging out at the ends of the metro lines, and talking and interacting with people. Um, And that really became the mainstay of my research, 
I got pretty good at striking up conversations with strangers on public transport. And this was a mental and social jump for me. Um, I, I like the anonymity of public transit and being in my own bubble. But if I was going to do this project, I knew I had to put myself out there. And that talking to people in offices was only part of the story. Um, I really wanted to understand the social impact of the system, of the metro. And that meant talking to people on the trains and those living around metro stations. So, so that's really what I did year after year. Um, I kept doing research. I didn't cut it off after a year or two or even three because the project also became about the impact of each new construction phase of the metro, how it was slowly seeping into the city and into people's consciousness. And this became very interesting to me, um, to be studying the metro as it was being built. And it meant that, meant that my ethnographic object was always changing, literally taking new form and shape in the city, but also uh, redefining the city's borders and meaning. Yeah, and this book is such a refreshing and interesting exploration of Delhi Metro and how it shapes urban socialities and intimacies in the city. Um, I love the way you explore the transformation of the city itself and its inhabitants through the transformation of the transportation landscape, in particular the metro. Uh, for those of you who are yet to read this deeply ethnographic text, the book is written as a series of ethnographic vignettes or scenes that are sewn together under three key, three key themes, and we'll get to those themes in a minute. Um, so yeah, it doesn't quite proceed um, like what we would think of as a typical academic book, you know, with this introduction, a theoretical framework, and then um, like maybe four or five analytical chapters and a conclusion. Um, but so before we go on and talk about the, the book and the contents of the book, I would love for you to tell us a little bit about why you decided to write the book in a somewhat unconventional manner in the form of scenes and what you think writing this way affords us. I would also love to know if you had any books that inspired you to write like this. Sure. Um, so in 2018, I started to bring the strands of my research together and to think about how I was going to put a book together, how I was going to write up all of the research that I'd done really over the previous 10 years. And this was a little daunting because I had a lot of material, but it was also daunting because of the way the Metro had grown in phases over this period. I wanted to try to capture the sense of time and space, which was also very relevant to my object of ethnographic inquiry, which was a system that was increasing spatially, moving spatially across the city, but also changing people's very perception of time and space and distance. Um, and that was really how people would talk to me about the Metro in those terms. And so as I was thinking this through and starting to write bits and pieces, I basically came to have a vision of the book whereby the form would mimic the conceptual framework. Um, so yes, you could say it was a decision for sure to do, to do the book this way, but I also feel there was something organic about it. And maybe this has to do with how I approach 
writing to begin with, and probably also has something to do with my background, you know, as a student of literature. And that is that form is deeply connected to meaning. Now, this is not new to anthropology. Many others have experimented with ethnographic form, and that's how the genre of ethnography has evolved and stayed fresh. You know, you could think of um, John Gwaltney's uh, ethnography, Dry Long So, <clears throat> from I think 1980 or, or, or late 70s, which is a self-portrait, what he calls a self-portrait of Black America. And he presents the book as kind of standalone interviews, very detailed, very ethnographic, um, kind of like vignettes. And the, the meaning of the book is about how they're grouped and how they are arranged. Um, you know, ethnographies aren't novels, um, but like the novel genre, it's a form that is saying, hey, I have a new idea for you to consider. And um, so I think form, form does play a role. Um, in terms of my book, the form of the book mirrors the ethnographic method, I would say. And my method was radically multi-sided. Um, you know, there came to be, you know, 285 metro stations over the course of the 10 years that I was doing this research. Um, and I didn't focus on a few stations or a few neighborhoods. I thought about doing that at the beginning, but I quickly saw that that instead my project would, would become multi-sided in this way. And so the form of the book also mimics the stops and starts of the metro itself, the idea of brevity alongside sort of the massiveness and mega-ness of such an infrastructure. Um, the form also relays the overall concept of the book, which is about mobilities, movement, what that looks and feels like, and how fragments of experience connect to the larger threads of people's lives. Um, you know, I'm an urban anthropologist, so I also think about the city as a form. And, you know, cities are fragmentary. They're never whole. And I've been very much influenced by works that not only say this, but show it through their form. So you could think of Calvino's Invisible Cities, probably, you know, one of the most famous famous examples of how, of the idea of fragmentation through time. Um, and then there's Walter Benjamin's The Arcades Project, which relays the city of Paris as hundreds of fragments, observations, philosophical musings. Um, more recently, um, a book that, that I also read while doing this research um, was Valeria Luiselli's Sidewalks. Um, and this is an early book of hers about her perambulations in Mexico City and, and elsewhere, kind of told in fragments or micro stories. Um, in terms of anthropology, there were two books that weren't about cities per se, but were, um, they, I would say they gave me license to think about form more seriously um, in my own discipline. And they were, uh, the first one was Kathleen Stewart's Ordinary Affects, which tells a story of economic precarity in the contemporary US through a series of short vignettes, basically micro stories that I think do their theorizing seamlessly through through description, basically. 
Um, another one was Hugh Raffles' Insectopedia, which takes the form of 26 essays of varying lengths that explore the social interactions between humans and insects over time and through many different geographies. So these books were on very different topics than my book, but I felt like they were gifts to me um, because of their unusual form and because, as I mentioned, they gave me this license. At the end of the day, I work, you know, within an academic discipline and I see my audience, you know, first as being anthropologists and other academics. And so it did feel a little risky to write my own book in this way because I want to be contributing to the conversation and all of that. But once I started writing the book as scenes, once I started translating my research interviews and observations in this way into these short vignettes, and I had this vision that I mentioned, there was no going back. It just clicked. And then I just had to hope I would find people who saw and under, you know, understood what I was trying to do. <clears throat> so, but as I went along, I felt the forum was enabling. Um, and this was exciting. This is why it was exciting to write this book. I enjoyed writing this book. And the forum was enabling me to illustrate the major concepts I had in mind and to show my analysis of the, of the Metro's social impact. So the book is meant to have a layering effect where description and analysis are, are completely intertwined. And by the end, readers should hopefully feel that they know something much better um, about Delhi, about global technologies such as metros and a host of other topics um, in a much deeper way than before. But I can't say at which point that will happen, after which scene or how many vignettes they have to read. <laughs> um, but I'm also someone who believes in the pleasure of the text. And I'm sure this comes, again, from my background as a student of literature and, and reader of, of different genres of literature. Um, as for how The Moving City was actually written, the style of it, um, I would say that's just the way I write. It's, it's not the way they want you to write for journal articles, um, but in a book you have more freedom. So in The Moving City, I got to do what came naturally to me as a writer and thinker. And I tried to, to connect that with the kind of anthropological analysis that I also knew I wanted to do. You know, Sneha, I think in the first part of my career, I thought, how am I going to fit my interests and way of writing into anthropology? And now I think, how is anthropology going to fit with what I do? And maybe that's just the difference between being untenured and tenured. <laughs> Um, well, I just want to say that I think your book gives me the license to to write in a manner that I want to write too. And I, I will just add that your text is deeply pleasurable to read. I just felt like uh, at many points in the book, I felt like I was on the metro, especially because there is some uh, vignettes had a sequencing of um, stations. And I really, I just felt like I was on the metro with you. And I think me that was really the it was like a master class in ethnographic writing uh, that's kind of what I'm uh, sticking to with your book because it really is just so vivid and um, theorizes along the way but in this in this really engaging and, and um, 
And yeah, very inspiring, Manu. And I, I mean, I think your book affords me the license now, so I'm really happy that there are... Well, I'm, I'm delighted to hear you say that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there's Moving City and there's Bombay Brokers now and uh, Lisa Workman's Waiting Town. There are all these exciting urban books that are coming out written, written in this in this really compelling way, according to me. And I'm, I'm just happy that I get to um, jump on the bandwagon and... Yeah, coming back to Delhi Metro, I think one of the things that we could address before going into the book is that moment, that really tense moment when you write about you're meeting someone who is very critical of the Metro and you see that on their desk, there's this newspaper report about a talk that you gave about the Metro, um, which was interpreted by the reporter of this newspaper as being some sort of a celebration of the Metro. Um, could you give us a bit of a context around how the metro was built, how it's been received, um, celebrated, and criticized, and how you try to position your writing as a contribution, and maybe not necessarily a, ce- a celebration of metro, mm. but as a contribution? Sure. Um, so the metro is a production of the government of India, and it began as a set of negotiations with the Japanese government, who provided most of the funding in the form of loans uh, to build the first three phases. The Delhi Metro Rail Corporation, which I mentioned before, the DMRC, was formed to be in charge of the construction and operations of the system. And that corporation itself is half central government of India and half government of Delhi. So they have joint sort of jurisdiction over the project. Being the capital city and having the backing of the central government made this project unique from the get-go. It was not the sort of municipal infrastructure project that was going to get stalled or be done in a shoddy manner. The metro took precedence in the city and was given way. It also caused, of course, massive disruption in terms of traffic and the closing of roads. But it was also a transnational project with consultants and engineers working on it from around the world, from countries who had successful subway systems, including France, Germany, Sweden, South Korea. The DMRC brought in international standards to the construction sites, everything from washing the tires of the construction vehicles before they leave a site and entered the roads to, you know, public campaigns on how to use the metro. Um, because this was a new technology. Um, They had puppet shows and street theater. Uh, You know, many people I talked to who took their first rides on the metro, the first technology that was new to them was the escalator, riding on the escalator. So there was was this kind of campaign. Um, There was also a lot of excitement about it. Now, it doesn't mean there weren't issues and pushback. There was. There were economic reports done from various NGOs, such as TRIP, based at IIT, that showed um, that much less money would go much further and serve many more people if it was put into making a world-class bus system, for instance. But the Metro was a top-down project, and there was little scope for other voices in the community to intervene. Once the construction started, there were cases where groups did intervene, especially sort of upper middle class community groups. Um, For instance, one of the early lines, the yellow line, went from being underground 
in the middle of the city to an elevated line as it moved to, to the outer parts of the city. And this elevated part of the line was going to block the view of the Kutub Minar, which is, you know, as you know, one of the most important heritage sites in the city and one of the oldest. And the Delhi Urban Arts Commission came onto the scene and made presentations to the DMRC explaining why they had to move the line. There were many interventions like this around heritage, but in this case, the DMRC actually did respond and changed the course of the line at great cost. Um, So there was a little bit of back and forth, but mostly not. Um, In terms of how the public responded to the Metro, it is seen as a huge success, especially for the sector of working class to middle class people who who ride it every day. Um, and that's about 3 million riders every day. It's The metro as a whole is considered a lifeline in the city and people use that word. Um, it's It's been transformative. Um, people in Delhi are also happy to have world-class infrastructure in their midst for them to use and step into. I mean, who's gonna say no to that? At the same time, <clears throat> my contribution is to reveal and probe the contradictions in such a system. Um, Does the metro make Delhi world-class by virtue of its presence? Well, no, because the majority of people still take the bus and the bus system has improved, but is not given the same funds or priority. Um, The metro was also built as a standalone system. So when you step down from a station, you have to search out other forms of transport. Everything is not as linked as it should be. And then there's the larger question of land and capital assets. The metro causes densification along its lines and improves the financial fortunes of people who already have capital and who can invest along those metro lines. Um, So the focus in my book was really to think about the social impact of the system as a whole and to focus on the experiences of of people, of writers, and how those experiences intersect with some of these larger issues of urban planning and and infrastructure. So I'm interested in the visions of regular people who ride the metro and also the planning visions of architects, bureaucrats, and others. And really, um, I'm asking where do those, or I'm showing, where do those visions intersect? It's a way to imagine the city through my interlocutors on the train. Um, And so that also is is really the contribution to bring those voices out. Um, Delhi is often portrayed either as a rich city of powerful bureaucrats and politicians, uh, which it is, um, or as a very poor city um, of informal settlements, of slum dwellers, And my book really looks at the in-between sectors and thinks about issues of social mobility and of aspiration. We hear a lot about the aspiring middle classes in India, and those are many of the kinds of people that I talk to on the trains. Um, I also see this book in terms of contribution as a a kind of public text about public transit. Um, There's the University of California Press Uh, version of the book. But the book has also been published as a more commercial trade book by the Delhi-based publisher Rolly Books. 
um, for the South Asia market. So in addition to contributing to more academic you know, discussions in anthropology and urban studies and other disciplines, I hope for the book to contribute to the actual discourse on the metro that's already happening in Delhi you know, every day in newspapers, on the trains, and, and elsewhere. Yeah. yeah, and congratulations on the Indian edition. Ruli, uh, you know, has some amazing books, and it's so exciting that your book is uh, is going to be out by the name of Metro Nama, right, if I'm not wrong? Yeah, that's right, Metro Nama. Great. Um, so the book is divided into three parts, Crowded, Expanding, and Visible. Those are the names of the three parts. Each part seems to provide a certain kind of um, shelter to a set of scenes that carefully unfold through the book. So what made you come up with these three themes in particular and how do they hold the book together? So um, even though the vignettes relay the fragmentary nature of urban life, um, as I mentioned before, and the stop and start, the stop and starts, the flow of the metro system itself, the book also relays the narrative of the construction of the three phases and how each of the phases impacted the city in a very broad sense. So my division of the book into three parts, um, as you mentioned, titled Crowded, Expanding, and Visible, expresses how I see the impact of each of the phases conceptually. Um, So phase one was completed in the mid-2000s and was, in a sense, meant to address the crowded city, crowded with cars, crowded with people, and the metro becomes a new way to funnel people through the city. Crowds, the idea of crowds also appealed to me because they are a classic ethnographic object and, and many anthropologists have written about crowds. What can crowds do? What is the feeling of being in one? What do they mean? Um, sometimes people discount the crowds of public transit since they're not overtly political, uh, you know, it's not a crowd at a, at a rally or that kind of thing. Um, but I was interested in the concept of crowds continually being made and unmade in the space of mass transit mm-hmm. and how people experience crowdedness in this new format of, you know, metro stations and, and trains. With phase two of the metro I and part two of the book, I wanted to organize the scenes to emphasize the idea of expanding for the simple reason that as the metro grows, the city borders expand. And it was in the second phase where you really felt the metro could take you somewhere far away. Um, And in a more imaginative sense, I saw that people began to have a more expansive view of the city. So the book is always mirroring how people are experiencing the city and how the city's urban geography is changing. Um, With the last chapter, uh, which mirrors the third phase, I called it visible um, because my argument is that as the metro evolves and grows and becomes more firmly ensconced in urban discourse and experience, it also becomes a place of social recognition of many different kinds. By the time we get to the completion of the third phase in the late 2010s, things that happen on the metro are more visible on one hand. They they appear in the news. People reference the metro in 
concrete ways to talk about all aspects of the city and urban life. And then on the other, there's also this idea of who gets seen on the metro. And because they are seen on the metro, they are more recognized. Um, They're not always in, in the way people might want. So you could say that crowded, expanding, visible are three adjectives that could be interchanged. Um, phase three is also about cry- crowding. Fra- phase one is also about visibility. But I put them in that order because I felt that each phase launched a new emphasis or new era for how the city was being seen and experienced. Um, the other themes that are weaved through each of the parts include the hierarchies of transport, um, the intersection of transport and social mobilities, especially around gender and class, um, the nature of urban space, and also our understanding of the relationship between the urban and the rural, how that plays out um, on the metro, but also through the metro, um, issues of architecture and urban design, um, governance, of course, the metro becomes another symbol of what the government can and cannot do. Um, And then the meanings of public, public space, and how inclusion and exclusions play out in the day-to-day. I I would say those are some of the major themes. Thank you. That's that's really useful to anchor our discussion uh, moving forward. So usually in, in my interviews on new books, I tend to ask um, authors about each chapter or or almost all the chapters of their book and I go chapter by chapter but I just don't think that approach would do justice to your book due to its very unique structure so instead I thought I'd just ask you some questions about uh, moments in the book that stood out to me or themes that um, I thought were really really interesting Um, and you know feel free to read out a vignette uh, in case that's helpful I'm sure our listeners would love that Uh, So yeah, something that came up through the book, um, and I think I'm biased because I'm interested in this relationship, but it's the complicated relationship that women have to the metro, right? So on the one hand, it seems to provide a reprieve from the gendered fear that characterizes the difficult streets of Delhi. um, And beyond that, it also indicates a space of transformation of the self and Um, You know, you write about uh, Sonam Kapoor's character in Delhi 6, riding through the metro and it being this practice of liberation and she, the way her movements change as she's moving through the metro. Um, On the other hand, you also point out in the book that there are some deep tensions around whether or not the metro is just a microcosm of the deep caste class divisions and the general selfishness that characterize the streets below um, and its relationship to um, to the gendered geographies of belonging in Delhi. So could you speak a little bit about how gender interacts with the space and the fantasy of the metro? I, I like your phrasing there about the space and fantasy of the metro, um, because it, it really is both. It's a utilitarian kind of space in that it has a real function. People plop their tokens or slide their metro card to enter a station They get on a train and go somewhere and get there much faster than they would have been able to otherwise. Um, And then there's the fantasy of the metro, uh, the way it looks, the way it feels, the way people feel when they're riding it, the feeling of movement, of forward, you know, propulsion. 
um, it's an embodied experience. Um, so yes, it's about getting from point A to point B, but but also much more than that. Um, maybe this is a, a good time to to read um, one of the vignettes uh, that kind of talks about what you're what you're asking about. Um, so this vignette is in the first part of the book called Crowded. And the title of the vignette is from Badrpur. Badrpur is um, on the violet line. And at the time, the research behind this vignette was when Badrpur was actually the end of the violet line. Um, so one of those lines reaching out into, into the hinterlands. A group of eight or nine women get on the ladies' coach at Badrpur. Wearing simple salvar kameez suits and cotton fabrics, their heads are lightly covered. Some are barefoot. Some have small children with them. Two young men, perhaps husbands or other kin, get on the ladies' coach with the women, settle them there, and then exit the coach and run along the platform to enter a general coach. They do not like most men who enter the ladies' coach, simply walk through the invisible divider between the ladies and general coaches, the in-between accordion space or gender line, as I sometimes like to think of it. They seem, these men, they seem they want to, to want to respect the ladies' coach for being for ladies. This is what first makes them stand out. A few minutes later, once the metro is moving, one of the men enters the ladies' coach and walks purposefully down the length of the coach to his female kin and says in Hindi, you're sure you know where to get off? He says the name of a station and then quickly retreats to the general coach. Again, his movements are more of someone on an Indian railways train than a metro train. Head a little stooped, walking tentatively with the sway of the coach. Soon these women with their bare feet and lightly covered heads become less conspicuous as more and more women enter the coach. Women in dress shirts and skirts or black pants going to office, students in sneakers, women in salvars or churidar pajamas with kurta tops of varying lengths. Fitted clothing with straighter lines begins to outnumber the loose cotton flowy fabrics. These women and their clothes and habits get absorbed by the crowd in the ladies' coach. But I can't figure out what will happen to the gait of their male kin. If over time they will move differently as they walk the length of a metro train, or if for them, the metro will always be a kind of Indian railways train, one where they settle their women kin and check on them and make sure they know where to get off. Um, this episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. 
we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. To go back to your question about whether the metro is a microcosm of society, um, is really one I think that we could pose for for all social institutions. Um, are they microcosms of the divisions and cleavages we see in society, or do they stand for something else? Do they do something else? And this is really what we study, you know, especially in anthropology and sociology. We're we're looking at institutions in order to understand how they are reflective of society, but also to to notice the gaps, the glimmers of something else. Um, of how they might be transformative. And that's what was exciting about this kind of research and really what drew me to study the, the Delhi Metro. I knew that it was reflective of the city, but I also knew that it was a symbol of a global form of transit and of an aspirational culture, so also about change. Um, in terms of gender on the Metro, I mean, listen, when they started having a ladies' coach uh in 2010, it was because the Delhi Metro Rail Corporation didn't want any complaints or negative press about women's experience on the Metro trains. It wasn't that women were asking for a ladies coach, Um, but one was instituted and it was then uh, immediately seen as providing a kind of safe space for women. It was also seen as a reflection of patriarchal patriarchal attitudes that you find in India and many places, uh, maybe most places in the world. And these attitudes tell women that they need to be protected, that they shouldn't go out as much, that they shouldn't go out at night, or that they shouldn't go out alone. And this is restricting for women. And most women do not want to be restricted in this way. Um, It affects them socially, economically, psychologically. Um, So the ladies' coach does have this contradiction about it. Um, women's mobility in a kind of protected space. Uh, Nevertheless, it does enable greater mobility for many women. Um, Many told me that they simply would not ride the metro unless there was a ladies coach. Many families uh, would not let their daughters and wives go around the city on their own if it weren't for that ladies coach. So I think it is serving an important function at the moment. And... um, you know, in this way, the metro is transformative because those women are creating and acting out itineraries that they wouldn't have necessarily been creating or acting out. Um, and I think that's a good thing because you never know where it's going to lead. Um, and that's where the metro can also be a space for fantasy, like we see uh, in the movie Delhi Six. I should add that Many men also told me over the years that they find the metro to be a safer and less aggressive space as compared to the street or buses. And this also has to do with the broader you know, surveillance mechanisms of the system uh, as a whole, the cameras, the bright lights, um, the security forces on patrol. Thank you. That's, that's very interesting to to hear you speak about this and of course to read it in your book and 
I was thinking of similar conversations that I've had with, uh, again, middle class, upwardly mobile, younger women taking the metro about it really being the game changer in terms of how much access they have of the city. And Hyderabad metro is like tiny compared to the Delhi one. But um, I was also thinking about it in terms of the the, the possibilities um, that the metro offers. Um, yeah, and, you know, the design and the aesthetics of the Delhi metro and the stations seem to have been the site of very interesting reflections on sustainability um, fit and whether the metro stands apart as a spectacle or blends into the ordinary everyday life of the city, its rhythms, its crowds, its feel. I found it very interesting when one of the people that you uh, talk about in the book says that stepping out of this world-class infrastructure and onto the pop-marked chaotic streets below is a bit of a sensory shock. Um, could you let us in on the kinds of discussions and deliberations that architects and planners were having about the look and feel of the met- metro and uh, what that tells us about the metro being pivoted as an imposition or an organic emergence? Mm. Yeah. Um, so, well, the reality is that it was not an organic emergence. It was an imposition. Um, it's made of concrete and steel and required you know, the physical transformation of hundreds of kilometers of, of urban space. Um, the DMRC likes to say that it was organic in the sense that because of the issues of traffic and pollution on Delhi roads, there was an incredible need for a metro system like this. So their idea um, is that it's not something foreign being imposed. It's going to be something Indian. Um, And I think that's true. You know, the production of coaches and other aspects is increasingly indigenized and you know, Diliwalas themselves have quickly grown accustomed to riding the metro and following its protocols. Um, so part of it is really a question of how people talk about things, which is important, obviously. Um, but the metro does also take up land, and it moved a lot of families and businesses out of its way. And some of those disputes are are ongoing, as the even as the fourth phase of the metro is now being planned and constructed. Um, in terms of the look and feel of the metro, the DMRC uh, looked at precedents at other metros in other cities, especially Asian cities, uh, because they had similar crowd sizes, they had similar climates, and they were made more recently um, in the last decades. The Delhi metro trains, for instance, were modeled after the Hong Kong metro, and uh when I was in Hong Kong for an academic event, I uh, rode their metro, and it was really uncanny. It, it felt like being on the Delhi metro, so that was kind of cool. Um, it was also interesting to see the way the Hong Kong metro weaved in and through that city, which has its own very unique geography. Um, and again, this is this is really what drew me drew me to study the the Delhi metro um, because one of my initial research questions was what it did it mean for an already built up highly developed city to have a metro system laid over it in a sense um, over and under it and I was struck by the imaginative potential of that and of what it meant for the city in terms of of how it looked and and how it felt and how it operated. Mm-hmm. And so what were the kinds of um, conversations that the architects, I guess, were having about, um, you know, 
how to not make the metro look like it's too first world or um, this whole idea of aspirational planning sort of built into the aesthetics of the metro stations. Could you tell us a little bit about that? I would say that the metro stations were built in a pretty functional matter, manner, and that is because uh, it's very expensive to build metro stations. Um, so it's not that they were trying to make the metro look uh, less like other metros in other cities. Um, I mean, there was the issue of, you know, what what is an Indian modernity? What, what does an Indian modernity look like? Um, but the plans for the stations especially you know, really followed international standards for, you know, size and and, and functionality and, and that kind of thing. Um, in the book, I do tell the story of uh, a French um, engineering firm or architecture firm, rather, that has this idea to make these sort of very symbolic stations with, you know, peacocks and temples and this kind of imagery. Um, and this, this was actually for the Bombay Metro. Um, and the story is about a local Delhi architect who's working with this firm and, you know, who's really poo-pooing their designs and saying, you know, this doesn't fit the Indian climate. This, you know, the upkeep is going to be impossible. And these are just, you know, sort of outside thinking about, you know, our local situation. And she's, she's more interested in issues of sustainability for instance. Um, so, so these discussions were there, but in most cases, maybe in all cases, grandiose ideas were scrapped for um, more practical ideas. And, you know, listen, some of the stations uh, are not aesthetically pleasing, maybe, maybe the majority of stations. And, um, you know, that same architect told me, uh, well, you know, maybe one day we'll redo the stations, <laughs> which at the time surprised me. But, um, you know, the question of aesthetics is about sustainability in the case of the metro and functionality. It is also very much about cost. And so these these really were uh, that was at the forefront of, of most of, of the discussions that um, that I had with architects in terms of their actual decision making of what they could and couldn't do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting to kind of um, scratch the surface of this world class infrastructure uh, narrative, right? Like, what does that mean? And then it almost seems like a bit of a moving target in all the conversations that you had, because they were talking about sustainability, but also uh, the metro not looking like it's foreign, but also like, you know, it being world class, but also local, you know, that tension between it not being like completely alien, but it being a part of Delhi. So owning it, but it being a class apart and different, radically different from the street. And I thought those vignettes that um, that talked about the way planners and architects and DMRC officials were imagining the space of the metro and what it does in the city, I thought that those were very interesting and quite, um, I think, quite a, quite a, a robust contribution to all these conversations around um, aesthetics and cities that's... Um, I'm thinking of, again, uh, yeah, like Asher Gertner's book comes to mind, of course, but like how central this, like the image of the world-class infrastructure is, but like as soon as you scratch the surface, it's kind of all over the place and there isn't a coherent um, idea behind it. Um, Well, the Metro has also been the site of some rather eventful moments in the life of the city. 
I'm thinking of the case in 2014 that you write about when three African students were attacked by a metro crowd turned mob. Um, Also of the time that a photograph of a family that made their domestic workers sit on the floor of the metro went viral. So can you tell us a little bit about these events, these spectacular events and um, how they shape the story of uh, the metro in Delhi? Um, What do these events reveal? Um, and why does the space of the metro matter to these stories that, you know, uh, became big or became viral? Mm-hmm. So both of the events that you referred to, um, I think, go back to uh, the earlier discussion and your question about, you know, social institutions um, being microcosms or, you know, whether they reflect society or can be sites of transformation. Um, the case of the three African students who were attacked by a metro mob, of course, signals a brute form of racism and nationalism, whereas the photograph of the family that had their domestic worker sitting on the floor and was tweeted by a journalist sort of calling this out signaled the everyday casteism in you know, middle-class Indian families. And both of these ideas, racism and casteism, go against uh, the metro, the idea of the metro, the fantasy perhaps of the metro as a globalized space, as a progressive space in terms of uh, technological change, but also social change. And they go against the idea of a tolerant and cosmopolitan city, such as Delhi. Um, so my interest in the events was not just that they occurred, um, because frankly, they occur uh, rampantly in other in parts of you know, all over Delhi um, and in other cities. But my interest was in the way they were covered by the press and how they became a national story in the case of the domestic worker and an international story in the case of the African students. Um, And the reason was that both of these incidents happened on the Delhi Metro. Um, The Metro is also a stage. And so it highlights events in a particular way. Um, both of these events that I then write about and reflect on um, appear in the last third of the book, um, part three, which, as we mentioned before, is called Visible. And so they are an example of the kind of visibility um, that the Metro affords um, because it is an international marker, because it does garner news coverage and puts India on the world map in a different way through its Metro system. Um, you know, it's an identifiable global space to people sitting in Lisbon and Cairo and Rio de Janeiro. Um, all cities that have their own metro systems or people in all cities that have their own metro systems can imagine the kind of space it is. You don't have to go to Delhi to imagine, you know, what it means to be on this kind of metro. Um, and so, so really the metro becomes a, a backdrop, um, a contrast you know, in certain moments. And I think that's what what happened with both of these events and and why I write about them in the book. So I thought the book did a commendable job of showing in very granular ways how there seems to be a certain kind of metro dwelling that has come to be. And, you know, you were also talking about this while talking about the the man in the vignette that you read out about his gait and whether that's going to change over time. Uh, There are lots of parts in the book where you write about the bodily comportment of people in the metro, whether it is them staring out into the city that you can now see from a unique vantage point or sitting on the floor of the metro, 
Um, and there are clearly some formal and informal rules and norms about occupying the space of the metro. Could you tell us a little bit about the kinds of discourses there were about the right way to be a metro commuter and um, have these norms and rules um, changed over time? So this is where issues of design and architecture become, you know, or became, I guess, significant and quite interesting to me. Um, you know, I was really asking how how is the space of the metro station, platforms, coaches different than other urban spaces in the city? Um, so, yes, I mean, India, of course, has one of the largest railway systems in the world for a couple centuries now. And so trains are nothing new. Uh, but a metro train is is different. Um, there's only one class of ticket and everybody shares the same phase, space. And even the ladies coach of the metro is a porous space. It's not enclosed, but rather it flows right into the general coaches, which are mixed, uh, mixed gender that is. So um, in the vignette I read about the family boarding the coach, that's one of the places in the book where I dwell on the idea of how our bodily movements um, change depending on the kind of conveyance we're in. But maybe that change happens over time. It's not immediate. Maybe you bring your comportment from having ridden the bus or the Indian Railways train, and over time you become accustomed to the movements of a metro coach and metro stations for that matter. Um, so on the metro, there is uh, there are expectations of how to move through the stations and how to move and be in the trains. Part of this has to do with speed. Um, you can't, you know, be just sort of moving at a slow pace. There are people behind you to get through the electronic um, system. Um, you can't just, you know, casually drop your bag into the security belt. You, you have to do it quickly. Again, there's people around you. People are moving. So that that is required um, to move at a particular speed, to, to change your gait um, from, you know, the street, for instance. Um, there's also the way people sit on the trains. Um, on the ladies' coach, you know, you you might find people sitting almost on your lap because they don't want to stand up. Um, so these kinds of things, you know, getting off the coach. Um, this is one way that the, the metro is, um, the Delhi metro is a little bit different um, than if you're in some other cities, whereby, you know, people will not wait for you to get off the train. You will be leaving the train and people will be entering the train at the same time. And it's a little bit of a competition and it's, um, you know, so people are very impressed that, Oh, you know, look, people are lining up to get into stations. And yeah, that's true. They have to line up for the, because of the way the security is laid out. But when it comes to getting on and off the trains, it is very rare that people will wait before you get on. So, so that can be a little bit intense when, when the trains are crowded. Um, but the biggest difference you know, I think that I observed uh, for people riding on the metro um, was, yeah, the sense of of urgency to get on the train and off. Um, because also the other thing that's different with the Indian railways is that the platform can get filled up if there's a few delayed trains. Um, so on the one side, you have trains coming and letting passengers out. But on the other side, the trains are not coming fast enough. And so you have an overflow. 
Um, this is something I've experienced on metros all over the world. Um, I, this has happened to me in New York a couple of times, and I've actually had to leave the platform because um, it just got too intense. So, you know, but the architects and designers of the metro, they build the stations to allow for that kind of thing to happen. Um, but when you witness it and experience it, it's, it's you know, something else because you're negotiating the crowd in this very compacted space. You know, I think we've picked your brain a lot about the book and I'm very thrilled with um, how engaging this conversation has been, but I don't want to keep you for too long. Uh, would just like love to close this conversation with you telling us a little bit about um, what you're working on now and what can we hope to read by you in the near future. Um, well, I've really enjoyed this conversation too, Sneha. And um, as you mentioned earlier in the, in the conversation, um, you were my student many years ago at IIT Chennai. And I love the fact that we are now following each other's work. Um, and that we met, you know, years later um, when you were doing your PhD in the U.S. So, so I, I really, it makes the conversation um, have that much more special. Um, okay, so future work. Um, you know, I do feel like I have one more Delhi book in me. <laughs> so to be honest, with the pandemic and everything, I can't tell you exactly what that book will be about at the moment. Um, but these days, I am still interested in public space in the city, in the intersections of transport and everyday life. Um, lately, I've been following uh, the, you know, writing all the op-eds and everything of historians and journalists and activists in Delhi um, on the transformation of the Central Vista, which, as you know, is the centerpiece of the city where you have India Gate and the parliament and many other in government buildings and museums and the lawns along Rajpath. And it's really the iconic center of the city and the symbol of Indian uh, democracy. And it's being, um, you know, partly demolished and mostly redesigned and rebuilt by the Modi government. Um, and there's been a lot of reaction to it, um, by especially by people in Delhi since uh this is a place for the people, um, you know, unlike the British colonial era, we, you know, India is a democracy now. Um, but the way in which it's being done is is in a, you know, top-down fashion. Um, and my interest is um, in the, you know, the larger questions around that. Um, but also I know that they, that part of the plan is to create some kind of monorail that would connect to the Delhi Metro. So, that was what initially I was interested in. But um, I'm, you know, interested in how this relates to the metro, but also how the Central Vista project intersects with the discourse on, on smart cities more generally, because that's, that's come up in, in sort of, um, in sort of the, the transformation of this. So, so I am looking at that at the moment, yeah. um, and we'll see where that goes. Well, that sounds, uh, that sounds really promising, and I totally hear you about... Um, not being really able to pin down a new project in the time of uh, the pandemic. Someone recently asked me, so what's your next project? And I was like, I don't know. I haven't had the, you know, I haven't had the bandwidth to go back home and actually like 
figure it out. I have some vague ideas, but yeah, I hope that soon we're able to, as ethnographers, we kind of need to be immersed in the spaces that we're interested in to, for, for there to be this aha moment that you had on the Metro, for instance. Um, and I, I really hope that you're able to go and uh, do all of this work uh, very, very soon. But yeah, thanks for joining me again on this conversation. And really, indeed, it was so special because of our um, because of our history <laughs> and um, it's it's wonderful chatting with you always again congratulations um, for this new book and uh, take care and have a have a safe have a safe time during these really uncertain and strange situations we find ourselves in with the pandemic thank you so much sneha um for your wonderful questions. And it, it's really been a pleasure to talk to you. And I wish you the best of luck with your ongoing research as well. Thank you.